listeners, welcome to Name Drop San Diego, where we talk to fascinating people who shape our community and have been shaped by it. I'm Abby Hamblin. And I'm Christy Totten. We're your hosts. Today we're talking to Ellen Ochoa. Ellen is the first Latina to go to space. She was also the first person of Latino descent to head the Johnson Space Center in Houston, and she's the second woman to hold that position. Ellen grew up here in San Diego and recently received an honorary PhD from her alma mater, San Diego State University. Fun fact, she has three patents and a handful of schools are named after her. Ellen, welcome. Thank you so much, I'm glad to be here. So Ellen, you're speaking to us from Boise, Idaho. What are you doing up there these days? (laughs) Well, uh, last year I retired uh, from NASA after 30 years and uh, we moved up here um, enjoying the outdoor activities and everything Boise has to offer. And what keeps me busy is I'm on a number of boards, including the National Science Board, and I also uh, go around and still speak um, about, you know, my career, uh, women in STEM, leadership, and and other topics. So having grown up here in San Diego, we know you went to Grossmont High School in El Cajon and then San Diego State University. What were you like as a young person growing up in San Diego? Did you surf? Did you do, you know, the typical San Diego thing? What were you like as a young person? Well, let's see. Um, When I was in school, probably my main hobby was playing the flute. So I started that in sixth grade at Northmont Elementary and uh, played that all the way through high school. I was in the Grossmont Marching Band and the Concert Band. I played in the Civic Youth Orchestra of San Diego in the San Diego State Wind Ensemble. So that was uh, probably my main activity outside of school. And you actually took your flute to space. I did get to do that on my first mission. We had a um, an activity during the mission where we were uh, filming in space to put together an educational video for students that were sort of kindergartner through second grade. You know, kind of comparing what it's like to live and work in space with what they know about what it's like to live on the ground and, and do their work, which is basically go to school. And so we did have a little segment talking about hobbies, and and I got to take my flute and play that in space uh, in order to record it for that video. I love it. I'd love to see that video. Yeah. Our managing editor, uh, Laura Sicalo. I don't know if that name rings a bell. Of but course. Of course. I know all the Sicalos. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. She said that she and her siblings went to the same schools as you and your siblings. Yes. And she told us that you were raised by a single mom and that you and all your siblings are geniuses. Is that true? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, my parents did get divorced um, kind of right about as I started high school. And, uh, and there were five of us. And so, yes, my mom was the one that really raised us after that. What do your siblings do now? And are you competitive with them? <laughs> well, we, we've all kind of gone off in, in different directions. Um, my, my sister and my youngest brother, so the oldest and the youngest, uh, both actually pursued music as a career. Uh, unfortunately, my sister passed away a number of years ago. But uh, my youngest brother uh, was initially a professional French hornist, played in the Charleston Symphony, and now he's the principal music librarian with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And then um, I have a brother 
who's still in San Diego. He's the only one of us still in San Diego, and he's worked for the San Diego City Schools uh, essentially for his whole career. And then uh, I have another brother who lives in the Bay Area and is a law professor at Santa Clara University. Wow, you must have the proudest parents ever. (laughs) So Laura also told us another story. I want to see if this rings a bell with you. Uh, It was via her brother, and he said that at Northmont Elementary School in La Mesa, there was a class where the students were asked to do reports on a subject of their choosing. And one of the groups of boys chose NASA as their subject, and uh, we heard that you wanted to be a part of it, but they wouldn't let you because you're a girl. Does that story ring a bell or sound familiar? (laughs) You know, I had kind of forgotten about that until a few years ago, and I was at one of our high school reunions, and and one of the guys uh, in my high school graduating class, but had also been, you know, I'd known him since elementary school, he came up to me and he says, I'm so sorry for that. (laughs) But I I do remember uh, we we kind of had, we sort of formed our own tables, and the tables worked together all throughout the year to do different kinds of projects, and, and this was one of them. And I was really interested in what they were doing, and um, yeah, wasn't invited into that. Well, you definitely showed them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I read that you, you know, what you went into STEM because you always loved math. Uh, you know that you would sort of do it for fun while other people were doing it as a requirement. I'm wondering if, you know, NASA was always a goal for you. Well, um, certainly not when I was a kid. I mean, um, it was the summer right after I finished elementary school when um, Apollo 11 astronauts landed on the moon. And, of course, the whole country was watching, and and it was amazing. But, uh, you know, honestly, I just could not conceive of that as a career. I mean, there were no women astronauts at that time, and, as you know, very few that actually worked at NASA in a in an engineering capacity at all. So, so absolutely never really thought about it as a career. Even in high school, um, you mentioned, yeah, I did take a lot of math. I was able to take essentially what's the first college semester of calculus uh, while I was at Grossmont High School. But I didn't really take much science at all. I only took biology, which is required to graduate, and didn't take physics or chemistry, which just seems so odd now as I look back on it. But I just, it didn't sound like it was something that I was interested in. And I was thinking of either pursuing perhaps music or maybe business. I also really liked my literature classes. You know, so I wasn't sure, um, but really science wasn't a part of it. And then after I got to San Diego State, you know, I spent a couple years taking a, a whole variety of classes, but I did finish up the calculus series. And that's what really got me interested in maybe I should look into some of the subjects that that actually use calculus um, and understand how it is that people apply it. And um, that's what really got me into science and and in physics. And then maybe a year after I declared physics as a major is when NASA selected the first group of astronauts that were going to train for a new vehicle they were in the middle of developing called the Space Shuttle. And this was, uh, so this was 1978, and it was the first class that included both women astronauts and minority astronauts. So I remember that just being a huge deal because, you know, here was a career that had never been open to women before um, that, that was finally open. But again, since I had really just gotten into science, um, I, you know, I didn't think about doing it myself at that time wasn't really till I went off to graduate school at Stanford 
And at the end of my first year there is when the space shuttle flew for the first time. And then a couple years later is when Sally Ride flew. And by that time, I, you know, I was basically in the middle of a PhD program and headed off to be a research engineer. And the fact that this new vehicle, the space shuttle, was designed to do research in space was just what really intrigued me, along with obviously the whole opportunity to be involved with human space exploration. So we do interestingly have this amazing uh, San Diego tie to female astronauts who have done such amazing things. We're so lucky as a city. We just had Jessica uh, on the all-female spacewalk. And yes. we did want to ask you about Sally Ride because, you know, she has ties to San Diego. And I wondered, if, have, ha, did you ever meet her and what kind of impact did she have on you? Um, yes. So Yes, so I did. Um, uh, before I was actually ever at NASA, I did get to hear her speak one time. And um, by the time I joined the astronaut program, she had already left. However, um, while I was in the astronaut office, she had, of course, come to UCSD. She had started up her Sally Ride science effort. And so I had the opportunity to participate in some of the workshops that Sally Ride Science put on for middle school girls. And, um, and then also Sally Ride Science hosted a toy challenge for a number of years. So I um, came to San Diego to help judge those. And, and through those efforts, I did get a chance to meet and know Sally. So I was hoping we could go back in time to the day that you were hired by NASA. I'm just wondering, how excited were you? What was your reaction to the news? You know, who's the first person you called? Got a phone call, probably the most memorable phone call of my life, you know, after um, having interviewed a few months earlier, um, saying that I was selected. And... Um, so uh, they were planning to um, release a press release, uh, you know, either, I guess, the next day. And so they asked us to keep it quiet and not talk about it until then so that they could wait for the press release. But, of course, I called a couple people. I, I definitely called <laughs> my mom, who's always been hugely supportive of me, and my boyfriend at the time. And uh, so, yeah, it, um, I don't remember a whole lot else about working that day. Um, but mainly just about my excitement. I mean, it, I just knew that this was, you know, going to change the rest of my life. It's not just something that is good news for a day or a week. It, it really just absolutely changed my life. So you first went to space in 1993, and I'm wondering if you can describe that feeling of leaving Earth and leaving everything you've ever known behind. T-minus 10, 9, 8, we have a go for engine start, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, we have ignition, we have liftoff of Discovery on the second mission to Planet Earth Research Flight. Roll program, Houston. Roger, roll, Discovery. Houston now controlling. Discovery's underway, and it's rolled on course for a 57-degree orbit. Well, it's an, it's an exciting ride. Just the, uh, the launch itself takes about uh, only eight and a half minutes to go from sitting on the launch pad to traveling at 17,500 miles per hour, where you're going to be orbiting the Earth every hour and a half. And the acceleration changes quite a bit during that eight and a half minutes. And at a couple of different times, it gets up to about three Gs, which is, is the highest that um, it was designed to go just because of the shape of the shuttle itself and the wings, not wanting to put any more um, loading on it than that. 
But what it feels like uh, inside is that someone that weighs three times as much as you is uh, sitting on your chest. And uh, so it can make it a little bit hard to breathe and certainly hard to, to sort of move your, har- your arms up in front of you uh, during the launch. But then it cuts off, you know, very quickly. So right when the main engine's cut off, you go from being at 3Gs to essentially being at 0G, where things are floating. And now you, you start into, of course, a whole different regime of the flight where you, you essentially need to transform what was a rocket now into a, a spacecraft, or you can even think of it as a short-term space station where you're going to be living and working for the next, you know, 9, 10, or 11 days. Does being in space mess with your head in any way? I mean, you're there, you're doing your job. Do you ever forget that you're out in space, you know, and maybe feel like you're in an office or anything like that? Oh, no, it's it's a pretty different environment than being in an office on the ground. So you never mm-hmm. forget. But you are very, very focused on what you're doing in the mission. Obviously, they have um, a whole variety of objectives that we need to achieve uh, when we're in space. We always have a primary mission, but we usually have secondary experiments or other types of activities as well. And um, so you're really just um, completely focused on getting those done and um, working with the other crewmates and working with the ground. So uh, I would say it's a very busy time. In fact, um, when I got back from my first flight, and my first two flights were focused on studying the Earth's atmosphere, particularly the problem of ozone hole and ozone depletion. Um, When I landed from that flight and went around and was talking about the experience, people would ask me all kinds of questions that I realized I just hadn't spent enough time thinking about. Like, you know, what did it feel like the minute the main engines cut off? And, you know, what did it feel like when this happened or that happened? And I just remember thinking I was already thinking about what task I needed to do next and maybe didn't spend enough time just sort of thinking about the experience itself. So I made a list of things to spend a little more time thinking about when I went back up again a year and a half later. Well, what else was on that list? Well, you know, it was just um, uh, how you sort of, you know, move around. Um, Basically, particularly the transitions going from 3Gs to 0G and then a little bit more on the landing, Um, a little more time focused looking out the window, things like that. I read that on that first mission, you were in the space shuttle ready to go, and the countdown had even started, and then you had to exit. And um, then having to go back after having some problems, what was that whole experience like? Do you remember specifically? Kind well, of going sure, yeah. Um, we shut down at 11 seconds before launch. So um, at that point, you know, particularly once you get past 31 seconds, and that's when the control of the launch transfers from the launch control center to the onboard computers of the shuttle. Um, you, you know, once you get to that point, you figure like you're going, like there's, you know, there's no more weather issues. Um, they've looked at all the equipment, everything's working fine. But it turned out that um, the onboard computers, of course, they monitor all different kinds of sensors. And they detected a problem with one of the sensors at 11 seconds, so it shut down. Now, the good news is um, that's before the main engines ha- have started up. They start up at um, seven seconds before launch. And uh, once they start up, um, it's going to be several weeks before you're going to be able to try to launch again because you've got to um, actually take off those engines and put on some new ones. Fortunately, in our case, um, they were able to troubleshoot, realize it wasn't um, an actual issue with the sensor, but just 
how the sensor was um, reporting. So it was just a faulty sensor. Um, so, uh, or not, it wasn't an actual uh, problem with the equipment. It was just a faulty sensor. So they were able, able to replace it. And we launched um, two days later after our first attempt. You've spent almost 1,000 hours in space over four missions. Do you, did you feel like it did anything particularly to your body or overall kind of mental health to have gone through that much time? Well, at the time, that might have seemed like a lot. But, of course, now our astronauts stay on board the International Space Station for six months at a time. So when they think of, you know, 10 days um, on each of four different missions, that doesn't seem like very much time. Um, you do have to worry about your physical health for sure. Um, and again, that's um, a much more of an issue for these missions that la last six months rather than 10 days. But um, you do have to be a little concerned about your bone health and your muscle health. Um, we did have a, a kind of a, a, an exercise cycle on board. Didn't really have a seat because I didn't need one, but you had a way to get some exercise up there. And nowadays, we have some very good resistive exercise devices that um, help protect our astronauts. Um, of course, on landing, you're used to, you know, having floated for the last 10 or so days. And so you do feel very heavy on landing. And um, it's really your vestibular system that is the one that uh, probably takes the most in terms of getting it back to normal. So it certainly takes a few hours, um, generally after a shuttle flight. and. And for folks that have flown much longer, can, it can take quite a bit longer than that. Um, in terms of mental health, I, I didn't really notice anything. But again, when, when we are looking at long-duration missions, these six-month missions right now, and someday when we go to Mars, it'll probably be uh, at least two and a half years, um, just the whole overall behavioral health is obviously uh, one of the things that we have to be concerned about. And... Um, when I was director of Johnson Space Center, I mean, one of um, our main areas um, at the center is human health and performance. So the people who are, you know, the experts in human health in space and human performance, including behavioral health, um, exist at Johnson Space Center, as well as they fund researchers um, elsewhere in Houston and around the country. So we, we do have to be concerned about that. Um, people are remote. They're away from their families. Um, we do have way, uh, a lot of good ways of communicating right now when we're in low Earth orbit. Um, people can call essentially any phone number on Earth as long as we're in satellite coverage. Wow. So people can um, stay pretty close to their families. That's going to be quite a bit different when we go um, much further distances away and you have that time lag and you're not able to communicate in quite the same way. And we're trying to understand right now you know, how we can best keep uh, people in good mental health under those kinds of conditions. Do you remember at the end of those trips, did you feel sad that you'd be leaving or were you just ready to get out of there? Well, it, it, it's kind of funny. You you know how long your mission is going to be, so you are kind of set up for that. So it is somewhat about expectations. So, um, you know, on, on I think it was, yeah, it was my first flight. I think we got delayed uh, two days. Um, and... Overall, it wasn't a very long mission, but it did seem longer just because of the fact you're expecting to go home on a certain day and then you don't end up going home that day. Um, you know, I think people, again, who are up there for months at a time, 
they they just kind of put off in your, their brain for quite a while about, you know, it's not like they're counting down from the day they get up there because that, that just wouldn't make a lot of sense. They really have to kind of convince themselves, well, I've moved to a new home. This is my new home. You know, I may be going home in about six months, but something could also delay that. And so I'm just going to um, enjoy living in this new home in this new environment and really move in and settle in for the long haul. And so what were some of your favorite and least favorite things about being in space, whether it's the food or kind of just the way you had to live from day to day? Well, uh, yeah, loved being up there. Um, We talked a little bit about, um, you know, the view of Earth is amazing, but just living in a a zero gravity environment is, is pretty interesting. It makes some things a lot easier, like carrying around what would be really heavy objects on Earth, but it makes other things harder as well, particularly if you're working on something where where you're trying to juggle three or four or five different parts and you've got, you, you know, you can't just put them down, they'll float away. So you've got to either Velcro them down somewhere or if there's nowhere to put Velcro on them, you've got to put them in some kind of container. So it can take um, much longer to do certain things. Um, but I, I think that was all really part of the fun of, of being in space. It is a different place. And so everything you do there, you do a little bit differently. Um, I actually really liked space food, so I, I had no problem with that. Um, it, it does take, um, let's say, more care and more time to use the, the bathroom up there. And so one of the things I did enjoy was just the ease which, with which I could use it once I returned and also the ability <laughs> to have a hot shower. That's amazing. Uh, so what kinds of things were you eating? Oh, oh, we had a pretty wide variety of menu. Um, you know, we have, um, especially for dinner, a lot of different kinds of uh, chicken or beef dishes. You know, they, a lot of the, some of them come up um, dried and you add, say, hot water to it. And there's a little sort of um, heater, um, which kind of reconstitutes the food. Some of the other food is more like what the military gets with um, MREs, meals ready to eat. So you don't have to add water to it. You might just heat it up. Um, you know, in the bre- in breakfast, they have um, oatmeal and granola and some scrambled eggs. I always found the scrambled eggs a little bit hard to deal with because it, it tells you how much water to add. But if you get just a little bit too much, it gets a little bit too soupy. And if you get not quite enough, then as you're trying to move the eggs, you know, with your spoon from the package to your mouth, little pieces of egg will fly off because it's a little bit dry. You kind of need to have that surface tension of the liquid to keep it together. So that was always a little bit tricky to find the right balance. Yeah, we have a lot of tortillas, which we use instead of bread because we don't want to have bread up there because it makes crumbs. So people would use that in the morning for breakfast burritos. They might use it at lunch for a peanut butter sandwich or a chicken salad sandwich. And we even use it for dessert dessert to make space s'mores. So, um, yeah, you can be kind of creative with your food up there. What do movies uh, and TV shows get right or wrong about space? Well, um, so there have been some excellent movies, you know, the ones that um, kind of really look at some of the actual um, missions that NASA has done. I would say Apollo 13 is really right at the top of the list. And I think what they really got right was... Um, the interaction between mission control and engineers on the ground and the astronauts in orbit and and sort of, you know, how they work together to figure out problems. And even um, for ones that are fiction, like The Martian, I thought that was one of the best things about The Martian movie was that 
it kind of went through the pro the process of the astronaut on Mars and how he's trying to figure out how to survive and communicate as well as the folks on the ground. So to me, that it was just really familiar in terms of how they approach problems, how they worked with each other, some of the humor and that kind of thing. Um, some, spoof, some space movies really get the physics all wrong about orbital mechanics. And in, in a lot of the ones that are a little bit more on the um, scarier horror side, I think um, you know, sometimes they, they pit crew members against each other. And of course, that's not at all, um, you know, what we've seen at NASA. Um, the, the crews uh, work together and, and it's really, the, you know, the camaraderie and the, and the humor with which we kind of interact with each other. That's what I enjoy seeing in movies because that's what I experienced. Do you have a particular favorite? Well, the ones that I mentioned are, you know, uh, uh, for kind of ones that are nonfiction, Apollo 13, and I thought Hidden Figures was really good, too. And and then more uh, on the fiction side, I really enjoyed The Martian. You hold the title of being the first to do a lot of things at NASA, um, but I wonder if there's something else that you, you know, like to be known for, something else you accomplished in your career uh, that doesn't get mentioned as much. Well, I would just say, you know, obviously when I uh, went to work for NASA and, and when I was selected for the astronaut program, I mean, it never entered my head about someday um, being director of Johnson Space Center. So that, that was something that came along quite a bit later in my career. And uh, I would just say it was a huge privilege. Um, you know, we have this amazing team of people at Johnson Space Center. I mean, they're really talented, experienced, um, dedicated, you know, passionate about human space flight. And so to be able to work with all of them to say, okay, how do we accomplish our mission? And, um, and then how do we prepare for, you know, 10 or 20 years down the line to make sure that we have the right skills at the center, that um, we're incorporating the right technologies, that we've reached out and formed new partnerships. Um, those are all things that um, we worked on while I was director, and I was just really privileged to be part of that team. So having been director of the Johnson Space Center, which you began that job in 2013, would you rather do that or be back up there in space yourself? <laughs> Let's just say I, I had what I think are the two best jobs in human space flight. <laughs> <laughs> so you also hold three patents. Do you want to tell us something that, you know, maybe our uh, not adv as advanced in science brains would understand to um, kind of what you yeah. achieved with your patents? We actually tried to read about them ourselves, yeah. but we didn't really <laughs> Well, um, so uh, as a PhD student, I was working in the area of optical information processing. So basically, the idea is you're trying to get some kind of information um, out of images. And a lot of times that's done with a computer, but um, we were actually doing it with an optical system using lasers and a, a kind of material that could essentially um, create holograms in a, in a three-dimensional material. And um, one of the applications out of my PhD work was to use that to um, pick out, be able to pick out with the optical system um, defects in, in an image or an object that was very periodic. So it had a lot of repeating structure and you were trying to look for defects where, um, where the repetition had broken down. So that was the one that came out of my work at Stanford. And then um, when I went off to my first job post-Stanford at Sandia National Labs in Livermore, 
I was working with just a couple other folks. Um, again, we were all um, looking at optical information processing. And so uh, we came up with a couple of systems that were patented through the Department of Energy. Um, one that um, removed some types of noise from images and one that would um, recognize an object in an image um, no matter what size or what orientation it uh, appeared in that image. Huh, interesting. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, you touched a little bit on the way that people have to collaborate to make these missions happen. And one thing that really amazes me about space is that so often astronauts from multiple countries, including places like China and Russia, which we often have some challenges with, are living and working together. And I just wondered if you could share your thoughts on how does the international community work so well in space? And, you know, do you think that will continue and can it can it continue? You know, that's one of the things that I think is really amazing about the International Space Station Program is that we do have um, five different space agencies representing 15 countries that have been very strong partners for 25 years now. And they've continued to work together, even when sometimes, you know, at a, higher, at a different level, the um, relationships between the U.S. and maybe one of these countries has not been at its strongest. But I, I think what um, allows us to continue to work well together is that we are focused on the overall mission. Um, and we all want to make sure that our crew members are safe, um, that they're productive, that they're being able to do um, the science and engineering research that we trained them for. Um, and we want to make sure that the structure itself is sound and is able to provide, you know, the uh, clean air and clean water and again keep our astronauts healthy and productive and we we do have to work together to make all of that happen and um, so uh, we're able to work with the other countries so at, at, at a very high level I think we have the same goal and that's what really drives that partnership that cooperation. So now that you have uh, left the Johnson Space Center, but I know you are still very involved uh, with um, some of what NASA does, what do you think about the path that NASA is on today? Um, I think the one that everyone thinks about is going to Mars now. There's a lot of talk about that, and you've, you've even mentioned it so far. So what do you think about that path that NASA's on today and where it's headed? Well, it's an exciting time to be in human space exploration. There is a lot going on. Um, you know, what NASA has been asked to do by the administration is actually uh, put humans back on the moon um, as a precursor before going to Mars. So um, NASA has been challenged to put um, a woman and a man on the moon uh, in 2024. Uh, NASA is still uh, working to, to get funding um, for that program, but there's a lot of work that has already gone into that um, to help make that happen. Um, uh, some of some of that work, you know, we had already been working on um, for several years previously because some of the ingredients essentially that you need really for any mission beyond low Earth orbit are the same. You need a, a heavy lift rocket and you need a spacecraft that can um, take people beyond low Earth orbit and uh, more importantly, um, bring them back from um, areas beyond low Earth orbit, which means that you're coming in at a much higher speed and the heating on reentry is quite a bit different. And you also see different environments in space than if you stay in low Earth orbit. And Johnson Space Center has been working on the Orion spacecraft for a number of years. And that, that is the spacecraft that will be used for these Artemis missions, as they're called. Um, and now NASA has other 
uh, plans in work as well, and they're they're looking at working with companies on a on a lander system, uh, and uh, also we had started a program uh, or some elements called the Gateway, which would be um, having some elements in orbit around the moon that would allow both um, payloads and people to land at various different places on the moon, including at the South Pole, which is very interesting. So um, a lot of excitement. You know, I was I was back at Johnson Space Center last week, and a lot's going on. There's a lot of excitement, a lot of good, juicy work for engineers and, and operators um, and astronauts. And uh, so it was fun to to be able to talk to people about that. So this is changing gears a little bit, but um, I'm wondering what you have to say uh, about flat earthers. You know, we live in this time where people are debating the shape of the earth and you're actually someone who has been to space and who has looked at earth, you know, through a window and can, you know, comment definitively on its shape. So how (laughs) do you respond to that? Um, It's round. There is no debate. Uh, You know, some (laughs) people will just choose to believe something differently. And I, you know, I don't really know what you can say to people that you know, choose not to, um, to to look at any of the evidence. You know, I think as a country, we have an overall value of um, uh, supporting evidence-based research and science, and that's how we move forward. That's how we learn um, how things operate. Um, you know, it's really how we've learned about all of the science and then been able to apply it in engineering. And, um, you know, I'm I'm just, I feel lucky that I've been able to be a part of it, both in terms of research that I did earlier in my career and research I've been able to participate as an astronaut. And, uh, and even in my role now, I'm on the National Science Board. And um, we're, uh, you know, we help set policies for the National Science Foundation. And in general, just um, are able to collect information and put together policy papers on um, activities and items that deal with the science and engineering enterprise in the U.S. And, uh, you know, we're all fans of, of how we operate um, in the U.S. In, in that sense, in terms of um, we have a lot of intellectual freedom in terms of uh, what we study, um, we have uh, open and transparent communications and publications of that work. Um, we have a good peer review system so that you know people who write up papers and are and want to publish them it goes through a review so that people can understand what you know what was your experimental methodology? Does that make sense? You know, does that lead to what should be valid results and all of that kind of thing? And that's that's how we move forward. And um, so uh, I think we need to keep doing that. That's really what, what has led, you know, not only to the U.S. being leaders in science and engineering, but being able to take, take that and turn that into new products, new technologies, new industries, and really economic vitality in our country. So we have to ask you about the big news of 2019 being that we saw the first all-female spacewalk. <laughs> yes. Why did it take so long for that to happen? Uh, it it really is the way these suits were designed. And you have to remember, um, these suits were designed and manufactured in the 1970s. Um, people didn't actually even know exactly what they were going to be used for on the space shuttle. Just knew that um, people would have to go outside the space shuttle, maybe to do repairs, maybe to do other things like construct. And um, so the way these suits are designed... 
um, the part that goes around your torso is called um, a hut, a hard upper torso. It's an acronym. And so it's immovable, right? And originally they were going to have five sizes from extra small to extra large. Um, they never actually made the extra small. Uh, they did have a small size when, when I started um, as an astronaut and I had a few runs um, in the pool where we train with that. Even that was a little bit big. And, and what I mean by big is, um, so, you know, think of something that's fiberglass. I mean, it's, it's completely solid and immovable and it's covering your torso and, and the, the part of the shoulder actually comes out beyond your shoulder joint. So you literally cannot move your shoulder. You can't shrug your shoulders. Um, about all you can do is kind of flap your forearms around. So you can't move your arm across your body at all um, when that when the hard upper torso comes out beyond your shoulder joint. And so for a lot of people of smaller stature, or particularly like not very large shoulder width, and for the most part that's women, but you know not completely. Um, you just couldn't get the movement in those suits that allowed you to do the tasks that you needed to do. For, for a while, that didn't really matter because there were plenty of other jobs to do. And if you, and like I'd on a, I had many other jobs on a space shuttle, I didn't need to be able to do a spacewalk. I operated the robot arm. I was the flight engineer during launch and landing. I operated the science experiments. So I, I got a full, full range of activities. But once we transitioned to just the International Space Station, because we have so few crew members, everybody that went up there had to be qualified to do all different kinds of tasks in the spacesuit. And that's when the, the suit fit really became an issue. And it, it did knock out a number of women from being able to go up and, and spend an ex expedition on the space station. And, and I should say, I'm sure it knocked out some men as well, because um, it's, it's, it's about certain kinds of you know, measurements and sizes, um, not whether you're a man or woman, right? It's, it's really how well you fit in that suit. Um, the, you know, just the same week or the week before um, the all-women spacewalk, though, um, you probably also saw, saw that NASA was demonstrating um, some new spacesuits that they're developing um, that would be used for the Artemis program, for example. And you could see that they were designed quite differently, and the shoulder joints come way in, you know, inside the body rather than outside. And the idea is to allow that shoulder movement for a much wider uh, variety of sizes of people. So that that is something that folks were working on, you know, while I was at Johnson Space Center and certainly while I was director. Um, but until there was a program that actually needed it, you couldn't really get the funding to actually develop and manufacture those suits only to be able to develop prototypes and, and try them out. What does it cost to develop a spacesuit? Well, um, when you talk about the entire development and, and all the testing that you need to do, it, it's, you know, probably in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. Um, these suits that are being used in space now, again, they were manufactured in the 70s. And, and so you it's... <laughs> You know, you can't just go manufacture another one. Nobody's really made one like that in, in decades. Um, and uh, so it, it really, it's, when you think of it, you shouldn't think of it so much as an article of clothing. You should think of it as an actual spacecraft because it's, it, 
it does everything that a spacecraft has to do to keep people alive. You know, it provides your oxygen. It provides pressurization. It, you know, it cleans the air inside. It provides communications, you know, back to the spacecraft and to ground. Um, it provides protection from orbital debris and micrometeoroids. It provides your temperature control. Um, so it's really much more like a spacecraft with all of these systems and not just like an article of clothing that you put on. So you really have to almost compare it with developing a spacecraft, <laughs> you know, as wow. opposed to a piece of clothing. That's incredible. I had never thought of it that way. So as a final question, you know, you have definitely shaped San Diego. I think San Diego is very proud to call you uh, one of its own. Uh, how has San Diego shaped you? Well, uh, you know, I, I always talk about when I go around and speak that, you know, education was really the key for me having my career. And um, so I got a very good education at Grossmont High School at San Diego State. Um, <laughs> of course, I point out when I went to San Diego State, um, at that time, it actually didn't have any tuition. Um, it, you know, it was supported by the state. And I even got a scholarship from the school that covered my books and other types of fees and I lived at home, so I was able to go um, and get a, you know, a college degree um, very in, inexpensively. And as I mentioned, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to major in, so that kind of gave me the flexibility to, to take a lot of different classes and take a little bit longer to, to actually decide on a major. And I don't think I would have ended up in physics if, if I had really felt like in my first year of college I absolutely had to pick something and stick to it. So that whole, um, you know, education that I got in San, in San Diego was really uh, what allowed me, uh, you know, to be able to do my career. And I will say San Diego is, is beautiful from space. You know, you can pick out San Diego <laughs> Harbor, uh, you know, very easily. And so it was always just um, so much fun to be able to fly over the California coast and look down at San Diego and, and know that was my home. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Because this is Name Drop San Diego, we like to ask our guests to name drop someone who's meaningful to them to end the episode on a positive note. We recorded this interview with Ellen Ochoa before we had decided on the concept for this show, so we emailed her to ask her for one. And she actually sent two, so Chrissy's going to read those right now. I always have to mention my mother, Roseanne Deardorff Ochoa, who lived in La Mesa from 1959 when I was a year old until she died in 2005. She had the biggest influence of anyone on my life and always encouraged me. She helped our family take advantage of what San Diego had to offer, including the Old Globe Theater, where two of my brothers performed and all of us kids were ushers, and San Diego State University. Four of her five kids graduated from there, as did my mom after 20 years of taking classes part-time. Yeah, that is amazing. Um, and speaking of SDSU, her other name drop was actually the university president, Adela De La Torre. Here's what she said about her. I had the opportunity to meet her last fall when I gave a presentation on campus. Her grandparents, like mine, immigrated to California from Mexico, and her family, like mine, stressed the value of hard work and the power of education. Her own research focuses on aspects of Latino community health, and her leadership of higher education is much needed and appreciated. Awesome. Well, that is it for this episode of Name Drop San Diego. We want to give a special thanks to The Tonic Room in Boise, Idaho for helping us record this one. 
And we also want to shout out and thank our beloved retired colleague, Blanca Gonzalez, who helped us name this show. Thank you so much, and we miss you. Next week, stay tuned for Ralph Rubio, founder of Rubio's Coastal Grill. He's got some secrets to share about their delicious menu. Thanks for listening. Bye.